0: Father, we pray this morning that, Lord, You'd speak to us through Your Word, God. We recognize this is Your Word that we are about to open and look into. It's been spoken by You, intended for us. And, Father, we pray now that You'd give us ears to hear and hearts open to receive what the King has to say to His people. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Thank you, musicians and choir. Uh, Way to go, choir. Way to sing it like you mean it, I'm telling you. Boy, if you want to be a part of our choir ministry, just uh, come on Wednesday night. Practice every Wednesday night at 6.30 in the choir room. So there's a chair open for you if you'd like to be a part of that. Let's get our Bibles out. Open to Malachi, chapter 1, page 1104 in that pew Bible in front of you. The very last book in the Old Testament. Or you can just go to Matthew and go left. You're right there. Malachi chapter 1. We are in a series called Beyond Me. We started last week. Uh, We are in our summer uh, connect group season. So if you're visiting with us and wondering sort of what's going on, well, in the summer, what we do is we gather together in homes all over the coast. I think there's... um, uh, roughly 22 different groups meeting in homes on Sunday evenings. And uh, they'll be discussing the questions on the back of this card. Some of you have been curious about uh, that host or facilitate. Wanted to get these early so you can be prepared. And that's a misunderstanding what we're doing here. There's no what you... The only thing you should be doing is reading the book of Malachi... And then this process is we all go through this together and then we discuss it and we let it flow out of our lives. And uh, I heard multiple, multiple testimonies of uh, the amazing times that were had last week in your connect groups. I know that uh, the group that Lisa and I attended was fantastic. It was one of the best connect group meetings I've ever been in. Very, very uh, wonderful. So I hope that this will be a blessing for you. And again, if you're working in uh, with our children, you can tell folks if you have a spouse working with our children who's not able to be in here at this time the this sermon will be loaded on the website about 30 minutes after uh, Sunday school's over with, so you can listen to that and uh, you'll be they'll be ready to go so as we go through this for the next uh, five weeks after today so Malachi chapter 1, we began last week looking at what God would say to a people who have drifted. When we get to the book of Malachi, we get to uh, the people of God who are in quite a uh, predicament. They have really turned their back on the Lord in a multitude of ways. They are being unfaithful to the Lord and God is uh, very unhappy with what's going on with His people. Now, understand, these are the last words that God speaks for 400 years. When you get to the end of Malachi, there is a 400-year season of complete silence. There is no prophets. There is no word from God whatsoever until the incarnation, the coming of Christ, comes in the uh, beginning of Matthew. And so you realize the, the significance of these words. Now, to understand the book of Malachi... Oftentimes, for example, I like to look at uh, books of the Bible uh, in relation to the other testament. In other words, Old Testament books in relation to New Testament and vice versa. I think Malachi sort of links together with the New Testament book of James. The book of James is often seen as a book maybe whose theme would be an autopsy of dead religion, an autopsy of dead religion. If the book of James is an autopsy of dead religion, the book of Malachi is a prescription for revival. Okay? God is giving the people in the book of Malachi a prescription to right the wrongs. Now, when you read it, it seems harsh. And it is harsh. But God is is giving His people the opportunity to respond to Him and to right those things that are wrong. And so it's a very, very valuable, valuable book. And we talked about how easy it is to drift and how last week we said that the pressure to drift is ever-present. There's never a moment where there's not pressure for us to drift. And I want you to know that when it comes to uh, realizing that we live in a culture that's always trying to uh, force us down the current, if you will, from where we ought to be, Um, what God is saying to you is not that you need to learn to try harder, but that you need to learn how to uh, deal with the current. Fighting against the current is always going to be futile. You want to learn how to exist within the current and how to deal with the current. And God gives us that information. So last week, he began by saying, I love you to a people who are so... Uh, far from Him, who have done so many things to, uh, that are against His Word, that are against His nature and character, and yet He begins by saying, I love you. And we spent the whole morning last Sunday talking about this love and how this love is not contingent upon our works or our behavior and what a blessing it is to be reminded of that. And then we talked about the fact that this love is undeserved and unconditional, that we didn't do anything to deserve it, and yet God gives it to us. And once God loves us as His people, remember we talked about how that relationship is permanent because of Him, not because of us. We don't have to, we don't have to achieve or behave to uh, keep the relationship with God. God loves us. He loves us. And when we become His child, we will always be His child. That's an irrevocable uh, transition from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. But the way we respond to God is going to affect how we experience our life in Christ. Okay, well, let's look at this prescription for proceeding forward, okay? If we're a people who have drifted from God, if we live in a culture that has drifted from God... The first thing he wants us to know is that he loves us. Now, where do we go from here? Where is the, the next step back? So this morning, we're going to take that first initial critical step back towards where God would have us to go. Look at Malachi chapter 1, verse 6. The Lord says, As a son honors his father, and a servant his master, if then I am the father, where is my father? honor, the Lord says. Where is my reverence, says the Lord of hosts, to you priests who despise my name, yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? You remember last week, the people said to God, He said, I love you. And they said, well, then how have you loved us? We don't see how you've loved us. We don't recognize you loving us. It doesn't feel to us like you love us. And now this morning, the Lord is laying out this uh, initial sort of uh, declaration of their disobedience and their responses. In what way have we despised your name, Lord? Well, he just told you. You, have, you, you haven't honored me as a father. You haven't, you haven't reverenced me as a master. And so, what's the problem here that God's really addressing? What is the, the issue exactly that God wants to press into us this morning? If we were a people... Which we are, who have a tendency to drift, and who in many ways have drifted, to return to where we need to be, once we knew God loved us, what would be the first step that we would take? What would be the the first thing that God would tell us that we needed to understand and know? It's the fear of the Lord. What God is talking about here is the fear of God. He's talking about the people have lost reverence for him. They're not fearing him. Now, at first glance, you might think, well, now, wait a minute, pastor. It looks to me like this passage is talking to priests. Remember, in the New Testament, according to 1 Peter, we're all a nation of priests. We're a royal priesthood, so don't forget that. Now, in our, here's your first blank, in your, outline. In our returning from drifting, love is the location and the fear of the Lord is its foundation. The first step, love is the location. In other words, what I want you to know is if we're going to rebuild our lives, the foundation is going to be the fear of the Lord. Love is the neighborhood that we live in. Love is the environment that we're going to build in. There's, There's no foundation going Apart from the environment of love. If you don't know that God loves you, then nothing else is going to work after that. So, the environment, actually, the ground that we're going to build upon is love, and then we're going to lay a foundation of the fear of the Lord. Look at verse 5. For the Lord is in Isaiah 33, verses 5 and 6. Here's what the Bible says The Lord is exalted. For he dwells on high. He has filled Zion with justice and righteousness. Wisdom and knowledge will be the stability of your times and the strength of salvation. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. Now that passage of Scripture is telling us something about the fear of the Lord. I want you to see that apparently there is treasure to be found in learning to fear the Lord. God repeatedly in His Word tells us that there is great treasure to be found in learning to fear the Lord, that it is the foundation of coming back, moving back as a people who have drifted. Now, this treasure, notice in what it says there in Isaiah 33 that the Bible says that wisdom and knowledge, it'll be the stability of your times. In other words, that it's going to encompass knowledge and wisdom and salvation. But it's going to also become a, a, a stabilizing effect in our life. That when we fear the Lord, the Bible says, we're going to be stable. We're not going to be, be, be rocking back and forth to and fro. Now that's important when you're building a foundation. Now fearing God, we need to talk about this for a moment before we go any further. Fearing God does not mean being terrified of Him. Fearing God is not, is not uh, responding to God in terror like you would like going off the, the cliff on a roller coaster or in some kind of a, uh, a horror movie or something like that. That's not what we're talking about. It means to recognize and respect Him. It's to acknowledge His authority and that as one in authority over us, He can, he can place demands upon us at His will, and that we are obligated to Him as the one who is in authority to us. It's our... And in that we find stability. We want to build our house on stability. So I'm going to give you a principle, then I'm going to give you a definition. Okay? Here's the principle. The fear of God is a choice. See, before we even define the fear of God, before we... Even have a discussion about the fear of God, you need to understand at the outset that fearing God is a choice. At its inception, it is a choice. Let me explain that to you. Every single one of us chooses whom or what we will reverence. You choose what you reverence, you choose what you exalt. It doesn't, you're not forced to reverence anything. You, it's a conscious choice. So the fear of the Lord, is not so, it's not like catching the flu. It doesn't like get on you like a virus. You choose it. It's like love. Love only works in the freedom of choice. Apart from the freedom of choice, there can be no love. Well, the fear of the Lord is the same way. You choose to reverence God. You choose to fear the Lord. Now let's define it. The fear of God, to stand in awe of who God is. That's the simplest, clearest definition that I can give you. Now, it is complex, and we will go through this this morning, but at its essence, it really is to stand in awe of who God is. It's to be responding in awe to His character, to His nature, to all of the attributes of who God is. All right, let's talk about some ways that God's going to specifically address in this text uh, that we either do or do not fear God. So we're going to take the the positive approach to this, okay, because God's going to to be painful enough this morning. So we'll just let him be painful, and we'll we'll try to look at this from a positive angle. We fear God when, number one, we offer God our best when we offer god our best you see the first thing that god addresses with people who do not fear him is he's telling them the ways that they're not fearing him and the first way he identifies is the fact that they're not giving him their best that they're they're reserving their best for themselves or for what they choose to reverence and it's not him and therefore They're not fearing Him. You see, He he says, If I am a father, where is my honor? Where is my honor? What God is saying is that God is a father that is due honor. God is a father that is due honor. Now that Hebrew word, honor, it means to ascribe weight to something. To make something weighty. But here's what you need to understand about honor. It refers not just to an obedient response, but also an inner respect. That you see honor is both external and internal. You you to honor someone, it takes both ways. So you have to uh you the only way to honor someone is to do something with the right intention or the right purpose in your heart. Now, we know this as parents. You know that your children can, can respond to you in obedience but be dishonoring in, in their response, right? Well, yes. So, I mean, you can ask your child to please clean up their room and they can go upstairs and start slinging their toys everywhere, throwing them under the bed and throwing them into the closet. And then you go up there and say, hey, what are you doing? And they look at you and say, Well, you said clean up the room. You see? It's not just about the action. There's an inner respect and honor. So God... See, God... This is why you have to know that God loves you first. That's why this whole book starts with the declaration of I love you. As I thought about this message this morning and I looked at this passage, I kept thinking about how... um, how important it, it has been to me in my Christian journey. To There's a reason why my favorite quote, of, think of the millions of quotes that are out there, and of all of the amazing, uh, I, mean, I mean, I sit in my office, I look at all the books I've read, and all the amazing uh, ways that they've influenced my life and taught me things, and there's so much great wisdom in all of those books, but of all the things I've ever read, The quote that has always stuck deeply, the most deeply in my heart is A.W. Tozer's quote of the most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. You see, because you're not going to see God as a father who is due honor if when you think about God, you're thinking about something that is not really who God is. Think of it this way, how many people struggle with God, uh, can't seem to, to, to find their way to God in, the, in their own vernacular, the way that they would say it, because they see God through the lens of their earthly father. That, that's, I think that's why that resonates with me because, as you knew I grew up without a father. And so I never had a father. And I, to me, a father was someone who walked out and abandoned you when you needed them the most. And so when I first came to church and I realized that God reveals himself as a father, that was a little problematic for me because father wasn't a word that, that brought good things to my mind. But the truth is, is that the most important thing about you this morning is what do you think about when you think about God? Are you thinking about who God really is? Or are you thinking about a God who is through the lens of your experiences and your relationships? You know, people, people see the, the judgment, judgy God, the judgment day God, God who is 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 up in heaven somewhere looking down on all this pathetic creation and he's waiting for you to step out of bounds so he can smash you with his giant heavenly sledgehammer. I mean, People think that way. That God is just angry all the time and he's just waiting for you to trip up so that he can get you. And that every time something bad happens to you, it's because God's getting you for things that you've done. No, listen, Satan wants you to believe. He wants you to believe that God is waiting for you to mess up so that he can get you. But really, that's the stupidest thing in the world. Because if, if God were waiting for you to mess up so that he can get you, you'd already be got. Amen? Okay, so that lies. Let's throw that out the window. What about, what about grumpy God? A lot of people see grumpy God. Grumpy God, he's tired all the time. He's cranky. And he wants you to be quiet and not make any noise. you got to be quiet. God, grumpy God hates fun. Fun is definitely unbiblical. You can't have any fun if you're a Christian. So grumpy God, you know, he's the one that will, you know, you, you, you'll have to face judgment for every time you ran in church or you, you know, jumped around or, or, or danced like the children did or, or smiled or because grumpy God doesn't like that. See, some people grew up in a culture of grumpy God. And so when they actually were confronted by the gospel, they had to get over the stumbling block of grouchy, grumpy God who was going to. I talk to people all the time who are, you know, just running as far as they can away from God because they think that God is this grouchy, grumpy person who's going to steal all the... There's going to be... The minute you become a Christian, there will never be another fun thing that happens in your life. Good gracious. (laughs) Some people have this idea of, of... distant God, way off God, God's way out there. He, he doesn't have time to fool around with us. He's, he's, you know, he's disconnected. He's not really worried about us. He's certainly not involved in the details of your life. You see, and so it sounds like a, that sounds, you know, less damaging than the other ones, but it's not really, in a lot of ways, it's even more damaging because once you cross over the the river of belief that God is disconnected from the the details of your life, then really relationship with Him becomes almost impossible. That God's just disconnected people think. But here's the problem with all of that. When you open up the Bible, God reveals Himself in a very different way. We, we, Jesus comes on the scene, and right off the bat, for example, as Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist, as He comes up out of the water a voice from heaven comes down and says in Matthew chapter 3, this is my son, my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Now, is that shocking to you? In other words, God is letting you know who he is. Now, now understand something. God is being baptized and God is speaking from heaven at the same time. So if you don't understand that, go home and ask your spouse to explain it because I can't. But they're both God. But God is saying, now, have you ever thought about this? The statement, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That is universally the statement more than any other statement I know that our hearts long to hear. Do you know what I longed to hear more than anything else growing up was a father that would say, you're my son, Tony, and I love you, and I'm pleased with you, and I'm proud of you. That when that voice isn't there, or when that voice is there, but it's saying other things, that every little heart longs to hear that. And God is saying to you and me, This is my son. I love him. I am the kind of father that loves his children. And wants them to know that I'm proud of them. He's telling us about himself there. Paul says in Romans chapter 8. For as many of you as are led by the spirit of God. These are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by which you cry, Abba, Father, or Daddy. You see, the Scripture wants you to know that God is a Father who is due honor. He's a Father. And He loves His children. And when we don't fear Him, when we don't give Him our best, it's because we have sort of lost our bearings in this relationship with a father. But he goes on. Secondly, he says God is a master that is due respect. Now, aren't you glad that first he says he's a father due honor, and then he says he's a master due respect? What happens if he says I'm a master due respect first? That's going to be a problem, isn't it? You see, some of you here might have had a father that only wanted to be a master and wasn't much of a father. And you never wanted to give honor to someone who only wanted to be a master. But if someone's a father first, then it's just a smooth transition into being a master. Notice what the Scripture says in 1 Peter 2. The Bible says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Well, amen. How's that going to happen? Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Now watch honor come into this and fear. Verse 17, Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. You see all of that come together? All of that comes together as a father who's due honor, as a master who is due respect. He's a king. Now, in the fear of God, embedded in this idea, because we need to talk about this for a minute, because I think last week we laid a good foundation for a father due honor. But I also think that some of you are going to be resistant to A master who's due respect. Or maybe twist it around in a legalistic way and cause yourself some problems. So I want to just take a minute and talk a little bit about this. In the context of the fear of God, with regards to God as a master due respect, you need to understand that there is a realization of our accountability to Him. Okay? In the fear of God is the realization of our accountability to Him. In other words, listen, we're accountable to the Father who's due honor and the Master who's due respect. Now whether you want to embrace this or not, it's, it's a fact. And I just, want you to, I just want you to realize what the Scripture has to say about this issue of being accountable. Because it's really something that we shouldn't take lightly. And it's a big part of, and for many people, it's a big hindrance to their embracing a life of fearing the Lord. You know, Solomon, David's son, who wrote the book of Proverbs, who is the wisest man, the Bible says, who ever lived, who, who had conquered all, many nations, who had achieved earthly wealth like no one else had ever done who he in 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 his writings he tells us about his exploits of having the world at his fingertips and literally uh, searching and trying everything to meet the deepest needs within him and yet the wisest man who ever lived listen to what he writes in ecclesiastes chapter 12 here's what he says Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Are you ready for the... This is the whole matter. Here's the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is man's all. Now, what is man's all? Fear God and keep His commandments. Now... Look at the accountability part. So he lays out what it is. This is it. This is at the end of the road when I've exhausted everything and searched everywhere. Here's what I have to say. Fear God and keep His commandments. Verse 14. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Listen, we just need to embrace the reality this morning. That we are accountable to God. That you individually are accountable to God. That every one of you that's not a small child. Listen, you're, it's, not, it's not someone else is accountable for you. You are personally, individually accountable to God. And he means what he says. And he says, now if the end of it all is to fear God and keep his commandments then what we need to know to compel us into a right relationship with God, to embrace the fear of God the way we should, is that every work is going to come into judgment. Every work will come into judgment. Even the secret things, whether good or evil. See, when God says, you don't honor me, you don't respect me, You don't reverence me. You're not giving me your best. And in doing so, you're not fearing me. And if you're not fearing me, then the foundational principle of our relationship is non-existent. And so whatever you try to stack on top of that is simply not going to work. Maybe for some of us this morning, it's going to be the realization of why our, our relationship with God is so frustrating because you're trying to do this and you're trying to do that. Listen, if you don't fear God, everything else is going to be nothing but frustration. Nothing but frustration. Frustration. No matter how you slice it, no matter how you cut it, no matter what sort of you know humanistic ideas you've come up with to explain it away or to make it make sense to you, at the end of the day, he's a father due honor, he's a master due respect. And we're accountable. We're accountable. You see, our lives function as our own statement of theology. What you really believe is not what you say. It's not what I say. It's what we do. What we actually do is the declaration of what we truly believe. So the, the, the thing is, you've you got to understand, the, the, the people in Malachi's day are no different from you and me. Listen, they're not out there. They're in here. They're going to church. They're going through the motions. But in what they're doing, they're declaring that their theology, their true beliefs about God are that they don't fear Him. And it's evident in the way that they live, in the the things that they do, in the way that they do them. So when we fear God, we offer God our best, number one. Number two, when we fear God, we do not treat sacred things as common. You see, when people fear God, they do not treat things that are sacred to God as common. They treat them as they're intended to be treated. In other words, by fearing God, His Priorities. His economy becomes our economy. That we see things the way He sees them. Notice what He says in verse 7. But you offer defiled food at my altar. But then you say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying the table of the Lord is contemptible. In other words, who offers the food... That's at the table. Where does the food that's at the Lord's table come from? The people. So the people offer defiled food as an offering. They give a a rancid sacrifice. Which is then what is laid out upon the table. And then they complain and say look at the contemptible nature of the table. And God's saying how dare you. You do not treat what is sacred as common. You see, basically what they're doing is they're giving God the leftovers of their life. That's what they're doing. You know, we don't do that. We're not that way. We don't get to the end of the day when we're tired and we've spent the whole day fulfilling our own agenda and doing all the things that we want to do and then we get to the very end of our day and as we're exhausted and depleted, we can barely formulate a, a tangible, understandable sentence, then we we're gonna bow our heads and pray. Well, God says all we got, we're gonna half the time fall asleep while we're praying. Or just mumble some nonsense because we don't even we're too tired to even know what we're doing. It's just the leftovers. In other words, you know, God, because I'm a Christian, because I believe in you, before I go to bed, I'm going to pray. I'm going to lay down. I'm going to get real comfy. I'm going to close my eyes and then I'm going to pray. Really? That's what you're going to do? That's your... That's your way of treating the invitation, the sacred invitation to come into the throne room of heaven through prayer. That's your interpretation of going into the closet and, and, and storming the, the gates of heaven and coming into the presence of God and through the intercessory ministry of the Son who sits at the right hand of the throne of God, the Father. That's the way you interpret that? Is a half asleep, mumbling, bumbling, nonsense at the end of the day? Really? That's treating sacred things as, it's just, you're just checking another box. It's like, brush my teeth, eat breakfast, go to school, go to work, do these things. At the end of the day, pray. No. God's saying, no, no, no. What you give to God is a reflection of what you think of God. Whatever we give to God, regardless of how much we in this moment don't really want to swallow this truth. It's a reflection of what we think of Him. And I mean, at the end of the day, falling asleep every night, praying some half-hearted prayer... I'm sorry but it indicates what you really think listen I love you I think you love me if you called me up pastor I need to talk to you I've got a situation going on in my life I need some some help I, I need you to and you begin to pour your heart out and suddenly you heard snoring on the other end of the phone there's gonna be a wedge in our relationship I'm I'm pretty certain that there's gonna be a problem there right but even when you pastor and I wake up oh I'm gonna profusely apologize for that I'm gonna beg for your forgiveness for that But I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna. Now, if you call me up the next night and we do it and I fall asleep again, at some point, it's gonna, I mean, you've lost all interest. What's the point? I just wonder how many people, professing Christians, are ending their day of self serving, self satisfying agenda. And mumbling something that God is plugging his ears. He doesn't listen to any of it because it's just leftovers. It's just, it's showing what you really think of him. But you see, if that's true, the opposite's true, which is what God gives to us reflects what God thinks about us. Which is really where this becomes convicting. It's because what we have to do is step back from our tendency to give God leftovers and ask the question now, well, if that's true, then then what does God think about me? And what does God think about you? And we could talk for days about this. But let's just look at a passage from 1 Peter chapter 1. The Bible says, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold. Hello, we spend half our lives clamoring for silver and gold. And God's saying, listen, you weren't redeemed with that trash. That garbage wasn't part of your redemption. God doesn't care anything about what's in Fort Knox. That doesn't mean anything to him. He has treasure that is so far above silver and gold, it's not even in the same conversation. He says, you've been redeemed, look it, from your aimless conduct. Received by tradition from your fathers. This is the one who's saying, but I'm your father now. I'm your father now. But you've been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. As of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Amen. That's what God thinks about you. He is declaring what His personal value is attached to you through what He has given you. Now as we respond, we need to understand that as we treat sacred things as common, we're telling God what we really think about Him. And you see what makes his love, the, the, the location of his love so fantastic. is Just, think, just stop for a second and think about this. Holy, that He doesn't revoke what he just said. He doesn't say, you know what? You used to be redeemed with the precious blood of my son. No, you used to. But you know what? I'm taking it back. He doesn't do that. That's what we would do to anyone who treated us even remotely like this. He says, no, he doesn't do that look at how they're treating sacred things as common look at verse 8 when you offer the blind as a sacrifice is that not evil and when you offer the lame and the sick is that not evil I tell you what offer it then to your governor would he be pleased with you would he accept you favorably says the Lord of hosts do you know what happens when people begin to treat sacred things as common, do you know what inevitably happens? I mean, it it inevitably happens every single time. The same people begin to treat common things as sacred. You see, because something is always going to be sacred in all of our lives. You got that? There's never going to be a day where something's not sacred And so if you're treating sacred things as common, the only solution is that you have to flip it around. You begin to treat common things as sacred. You begin to put things above things that don't belong there because something's always got to be sitting on the throne of your heart. My father-in-law had a great line. I mean, the first time I heard him say this, I thought I was going to die. I heard him say it many, many times. He'd be talking to somebody and they'd say to him, They'd say, well, pastor, uh, I I really just haven't had time to read my Bible. And he would say to them, he'd say, well, I understand. I guess you won't mind if I come by your house and get your TV. And they'd kind of stand back. And he'd say, well, I mean, if you don't have time to read your Bible, I know you don't need your TV, so I'm going to, can I borrow that? Can you donate that to the church? We're having a yard sale. We could sell TVs or hot commodities. I'm just going to let it sit on you for a minute. Yeah, we don't have... we, we We don't treat common things as sacred. Are you kidding me? Well, we got time to worship at the throne of that television... But when it comes to reading the Bible, well man, I'm just so busy. It's a lot going on. I always say, my goodness, if we if we could as a people just read our Bible as much as we watch television, whoo, we'd be some geniuses up in here, huh? Oh Lord. Yes indeed. There's a question on the back, and I'm about to give you the answer, so you might want to write this down. A simple test, its just one simple test of whether you fear God, is whether you give better things to man than you give to him. You see, if you give better things to man than you give to God... You don't fear God. That's just a simple test. If you give better things to people than you give to God, you're deficient in fear. There are so many ways to illustrate this, to think about it. You know, what would happen if people... What would happen if people approached coming to church like they approach going to work? Some of y'all wouldn't have a job. Right? Yeah. I mean, we, we have people who church has become, for a lot of folks, you know, I mean, you know, you want to go and you should go and you try to go and you hope to go. Now, what if you approach work that way? well, I should go and I ought to go and it'd be a good thing to go, your your tail would be unemployed. you got to go. You get up and go to work. But when it comes to Sunday, well, I'm so tired from the week, I, I can't go to church. Well, what are you saying there? What does that mean? Come on now. Let's think this through. What happens... When it's pouring down rain on Sunday morning. I'm talking about pouring down rain. Rain Raining, South Mississippi rain. Tons of folks, they get up, they look out, they're like, Lord, we can't go to church today. It's raining out there. Right? Now I guarantee you on Monday morning, you don't go, oh, you don't why don't you call your boss and say, I can't come in today? It's raining. So I'm not going to make it. It's, did you know it's raining outside? I can't come. No, here's what you do: on Monday when it's raining, you get an umbrella, you get up early, you watch the weather, you have a contingency plan, and you get to work. But on Sunday when it's raining, well, it's just raining. I just I don't think I can swing it. Amen. Yes. Then when we get to when we get to church. It's like, well, as long as I get to church in time for the sermon, well, that's what the real church is, so that's good. It is? Now, what if you went to work that way? Well, I mean, I know I'm an hour late, but at least I got here, right? Yeah, no, no, no. it starts at 9 o'clock. At 9 o'clock is when it starts. You say, what? well, but I don't really like the singing. The singing's not for you. It's not about you. We're not singing for you. The one who you're supposed to be singing for is offended by the fact that you're not here. He's offended by the fact that you happen to make it to work on time, but you can't make it to church on time. He's offended by the fact that you say, well, here's the problem. I just, I got all these kids and I can't get all these kids out the door and I can't get them all ready and I can't. But somehow you get them ready Monday through Friday, but on Sunday you can't get them ready amen i'm just helping you here i want you to find the treasure of the fear of the lord right yes it's crazy it's like if the weather's too bad we ain't going or if the weather's too good well we ain't going it's got to be like partly cloudy Come on. If your gift means little to you, it's going to mean little to God. If it means little to you, it's going to mean little to God. Listen, God's not going to be jumping around going, Thank you. I am so grateful. That you managed to get your lazy tail up out of bed this morning. I am so thankful that you managed to get here. I am so grateful for that. Listen, no. If it doesn't mean anything to you, it's not going to mean anything to him. Now, if it means something to you, then it will mean something to him. Yes. Listen, it's not about the gift. It's about the heart behind the gift, isn't it? Yes. I mean, The most valuable thing somebody who, who you love can give you is something that's an expression of their love. Something that they made with their own hands. That they took time. That they thought about you. That it meant something for you. That you could tell that they took you into consideration. That's what means something to you. God is a father. And he delights in his children who who bring a a gift to Him that means something to them. Because if it means something to you as as a father, it means something to Him. So when we fear God, we offer God our best, and we don't sacrifice sacred things as common. We don't treat sacred things as common. Number three, when we fear God, we don't grow weary in service to God. We do not grow weary in service to God. Verse 9. Then the people say, This is God being a little bit... You know, He has a sense of humor. He's not laughing, but He is being a little bit... uh, He says, But now entreat God's favor, that He may be gracious to us. While this is being done by your hands, will He accept you favorably? In other words, as, as you and uh, people who are, are not fearing God, and then when we show up to things of God, then, then we actually say, "God, will you, will you bless me? Will you help me? Will you encourage me? Will you? we're entreating God's favor?" And God's going, "Really? Really?" Remember in Genesis chapter 4, Adam and Eve have two sons, Cain and Abel. Each of the boys bring an offering to God. Abel's offering, God receives. Cain's offering, God rejects. Why did God reject Cain's offering? They both brought an offering. They both were going through the motions. They both did what they were supposed to do. But yet one of them is received and one of them is rejected. In Genesis chapter 4, the Bible says, And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of the flock and their fat. And the Lord respected Abel in his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. Now, I'm, I just want you to consider something. Lest you leave here this morning thinking that all offerings are the same. I gave an offering so God should be pleased. Wrong. Cain gave an offering of the fruit of the ground and God rejected it. The Bible says he hated it. You know why God hated it? Because he gave an offering of what he wanted to give. You know what the key word is? Look at that passage of scripture up there. Back up to the the slide before that. The Bible says that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground. Verse 3, verse 4 says, but Abel also brought of the, what's the word, firstborn and the fat. Abel brought of the best. Abel gave the, the, the best to God. It meant a lot to Abel. Cain just brought some stuff. Said, here you go, God. He didn't want that. Abel brought, he said, look, God, here's the first fruit. Here's the good stuff, God. Yes, and God respected that. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11, by faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. It's just that simple. If it matters not to you, it's going to matter not to God. Verse 10. Who is there even among you who would shut the doors, talking about the doors to the temple, so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? This is the Lord speaking. He's like, hey, who's out there? Just lock the doors to the temple. Just lock it up. I don't even want you coming in here. Don't put nothing on the altar. Don't even bring us. Just lock the doors. Who would do that? He says, I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from your hands. Now, now listen very closely to what I'm about to say. This next point is going to be pivotal in your conversations tonight. The fear of the Lord takes us way beyond mere compliance to biblical law. You cannot be legalistic in the fear of the Lord or you will never fear God correctly. You won't fear Him. The fear of the Lord takes us not beyond, way beyond mere compliance to biblical law. Now look, look at what it says in verse 12. But you profane it in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled and its fruit and its food is contemptible. You also say, verse 13, oh, what a weariness. I was just weary. We're so tired, Lord. We're tired of all this. And then you sneer at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring the stolen and the lame and the sick, thus you bring an offering. Should I accept this from your hand? Says the Lord. Now, this is what I want you to understand they're bringing a sacrifice. You got that? They're not sitting at home not bringing a sacrifice. They're going through the motions. They're showing up to the temple. They're bringing a sacrifice. They're standing there. They're singing the songs. They're doing the things. They're, you know, opening the Bible. They're not paying attention. Their heart's not there. Their life's not in it. It doesn't mean anything. But they're going through the motions. Going through the motions does not fear God. It brings us way beyond mere compliance. And here's why. Because all of us know this next statement is true. All of us. It is possible to obey the law or the Ten Commandments while resenting them in in our heart. Oh, absolutely. It's absolutely possible. So we can be obedient to the law and resent it in our heart and it actually be an abomination unto God. Think of it this way. The fear of the Lord, it creates a heart of openness, okay? This is what the fear of the Lord says to God. This is what I mean by a heart of openness. It says, Father, I am yours. I'm yours, Father. How can I actively and fully please you with my life? That's the fear of God. Open." Not closed, open. You see, if that freaks you out, like if you're, if you're just scared to give God just unmitigated freedom into your life, that, that's a problem. You see, you don't know God, but you're afraid of something that's, that you've got the wrong God. This is, you can't on one hand sing, you're a good, good father, and then on the other hand turn around and say, no, you ain't coming in there. you good, good, but you ain't that good. It doesn't work like that. You don't know who God is. The psalmist says in Psalm 89 For who in the heavens can be compared to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened to the Lord? God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be held in reverence by all those around him. The God that we are to fear, listen, he's not the man upstairs. He's not your homeboy. He's not your co-pilot. That's not the God of the Bible. He is a God who is, is to be feared in the assembly of the saints. So we need to understand as we are making a conscious choice to fear God with our lives, we can't treat Him like anybody else because He's not like anybody else. You cannot treat God like you treat anybody else. Because he's not like anybody else. You can't treat him the way you treat your spouse. You can't honor him the way you honor your earthly father. You can't respond to him the way you respond to other people. He's not like them. There is no other person in the universe who is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints. He is unlike anyone else. He is unique in every way. So when we fear Him, we will offer Him our best. We won't treat sacred things as common. And we won't grow weary in service to Him. Okay, one last thing for you to write down on the back. Put this reference down. Psalm 147, verse 11. Because I want you to leave this morning with a promise. About the fear of the Lord. The Bible says in Psalm 147, verse 11, the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him. Now, I don't know about you. I'm just going to talk for me for a minute. You know what I want? I want God to take pleasure in me, I want my Father to take pleasure in me. I want my Father to say, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Take pleasure. And the Bible says that if you fear Him, He'll take pleasure in you. That's a promise. That's a promise. Listen, brothers and sisters, it is a promise that God is declaring over your lives this morning. That you can make the choice to begin to live your life fearing God there is treasure in that you know promises are good when you first hear them aren't they yeah like right now you're like that's good pastor I'm so grateful that you you shared that promise with us yeah they're good when you hear them they become valuable when you need them don't they see they're good when you hear them When you need them, man, they're valuable. But they become priceless once you experience them. Once you experience a promise, it becomes priceless in your life. My prayer is that for you and for me, that God would, the, the promise that God would take pleasure in us as we fear him would become priceless as we experience that.